So tonight I'd like to reflect a little bit more about intimacy and where it fits in our practice. So enlightenment described by Zen Master Dogen as intimacy with all things. Do you like the sound of that? (laughs) Really all things? (laughs) And maybe some things, but not all things. And it's our kind of a wish to have it the way we want it that keeps, in a way, excluding us from entering in to our and knowing and resting in our Buddha nature. As I mentioned in the inquiry, in the Buddhist tradition, there's two main orientations to practice, the pointing directly at the nature of mind, which is already free, completely uh, intimate with all things, And the pathway that helps us to investigate and find out what is what is the, the nature of phenomena, because it's the phenomena, it's all the experiences, the thoughts, feelings, sounds, sensations, touches, all of our experiences, where we get snagged, right? That's where we get hooked. We get hooked by our feelings, our thoughts, our images, our. And so, in insight meditation, we learn how to investigate that. Why? So that we see that it's in the constant process of letting go of us. And it's our insistence on taking hold that keeps us bound. Insistence born out of fear of not recognizing our liberation. So as we explore intimacy tonight, please... Suspend your history with intimacy. The bits that have been really good, the bits that haven't been so good, the longing, the craving, the avoiding, the the whole complexity we get into. Because if we want to learn anything new, it's always the case, actually, if we want to learn anything new, discover anything new, we need to not refer to what is already known. We have a lot of knowledge and there's nothing wrong with knowledge. It's wonderful. But you already have a lot. And so it takes this step of just being willing to uh, not always refer to what has happened before when I'm experiencing this moment. Simple example with a kind of a conventional idea, let's say, about intimacy would be I had this really, really lovely, intimate encounter with this beloved back in 1975 at such and such a restaurant where we did such and such a thing and I wore such and such a thing. Okay, that's what did it. If I find such a beloved again, if I create you know, the sort of archetype of the intimate encounter of the romantic dinner, 
then there will be intimacy. But all of us probably know contact is no guarantee for intimacy. Things that are supposed to guarantee intimacy do not guarantee intimacy. When we're bringing our ideas about intimacy into this moment, what is actually happening is that we're intimate with our ideas. They're the closest thing to us. And we're seeing the world, we're seeing my experience, internal and external, through those ideas. And we feel dissatisfied. Why? Because our mind, our knowing mind, in terms of its concepts and its ideas, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But when we live through it as our primary lens we will always see the world in terms of two. Always see the world in two, the number two. So, for example, we'll always see there's me here, one, usually, number one, and there's everything else out there, other, something else out there, number two. There's me and the rest of the world. Or there's even me and my experience. You know, for example, in sitting, we can be there just minding our own business and something hurts. And there's a sense very much of two-ness. There's me and there's the pain. The conceiving mind, one of its... And it's a huge evolution to have, to have a conceiving mind. It's a... What it does, the very nature of concepts, is to divide. Right? This from that. Bell from floor. Water from jug. I can use the concepts to see two-ness. And that really helps me negotiate the world. Really helps me find the notice board out there. Right? Because I know which bit's the notice board, the paper. You can kind of move in the world. So it's a kind of an amazing thing. But when we're living through here, which a lot of us start to experience, start to recognize, wow, living through my ideas about experience rather than the experience, we feel bereft, actually. Something's always missing. So living through the ideas of what's happening, you know, you can see it out there. This isn't abstract. This is, let's say you're walking, you're doing walking meditation. You can see the difference between when we're deeply intimate with the foot touching the earth, just in that moment. It's so immediate, we we, we miss it. We can really easily miss it. And where we're thinking about it, oh, here's me doing my meditation, and here's me taking another step, and we might get a little focused, but we still feel like, yeah, so what? You know, here's me taking another step, yeah. And then what? You know, come on, what's going to happen now? There's a big difference between this immediacy, which is not mediated by our concepts, and the non-immediacy, which is mediated through my ideas. And we have ideas about everything. We have ideas about what's happening in my meditation what should be happening out there, about the other person, how they should be showing up. 
And so then when we look for intimacy, that natural kind of yearning to be close with something, because through this conceptual lens we start to feel very isolated. We live our world with that as our main um, window, if you like. We feel isolated, so we seek sometimes for closeness. And because things appear as two, there's me and there's you, closeness is going to be when the gap between those two things comes together. As I mentioned yesterday, that's why there's such a lot of energy putting in to two things getting together in this world. But what we fail to do is question the appearance of things. Is it really true that there are two. Because all our attempts at closing the gap, of getting close, of having the intimacy, of trying to get it, will never be fully, fully satisfying until we really question that illusion, that idea, let's say, rather than put it to you that it's an illusion, that assumption (coughs) that things are as they appear to us from the surface. So it might start to sound rather esoteric at this point. It's very normal, and I'll start to illustrate with examples and stories. This isn't far from your experience. In fact, it's so close to our, it's closer than our experience. It's so close, we miss it. We keep going out there looking for something else in my meditation, in my walking. Don't quite trust that if I meet this moment without my ideas about it, we probably think things are going to fall into chaos. We need my ideas to keep the world in place. So Kalu Rinpoche, Tibetan master, he said, you live in the illusion. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. When you understand this, you see that you are no thing, and being no thing, you are everything. That is all. Pretty deep, isn't it? And sometimes we think, wow, that's kind of, you know, maybe that's his experience, but I'm far away from that understanding. I'm just struggling with my knee pain. You know, that's kind of like advanced course. And we start to then have the story that, well, because I'm struggling with my knee pain, heart pain, no pain, whatever it is is happening for us, we can very easily then start to think, okay, so that kind of understanding and realization is a long, long, long way off. Right? That depth understanding is a long way off. Because another appearance of thing, things is that there is time and that there is space. And these two are an appearance. 
So when, for example, I feel my heart in the sitting and it's tight and I'm closed and I hate everyone here, right? then the idea of peace, understanding, liberation, compassion and intimacy with all things sounds nothing like this experience right now. And we look at it in terms of space and time. Okay, if I'm this close now, I don't know if your mind does things like this. So if I'm this close now, and real complete openness is going to be, you know, this big, and in this sitting I've opened like one millimeter, then if I calculate how long it's going to take me to get from this closed to that enlightened, and if it's one millimeter per hour that I open, it's probably going to be... I'd say 20,000 eons, right, before I'm going to get there. Because we're conceiving in time and space based on an idea about what's happening now. But probably you've had, many of you know, have had experiences or um, glimpses maybe this weekend of it actually doesn't work according to our idea about it. Many people have talked about being surprised. It's like, oh. <coughs> As one person said, I'm happily shocked today. I'm happily shocked. Or in the group today, oh yeah, I'm surprised that, oh. It doesn't, luckily, the, the, the law of Dharma doesn't confer, conform to our ideas about it which is really good news. It's not so good news for the part of us that likes to have it all in a nice box, but it's really good news because what it means is that this liberation, this understanding, isn't anywhere else other than right here. And I think it's why, and this you can check this out for yourself, I think it's why that when we fall in love, if you have ever fallen in love, when we fall in love and there is that sense of intimacy, kind of very natural in the beginning, right? We fall in love. What we're actually falling in love with is that in that moment, time, have you, do you remember? Or, you know, time doesn't mean so much. You can stare for hours at the beloved. Right? And I think what we're really loving is that we've unglued from that rigid loyalty to time as a definition, as an ultimate definition. And that lets us relax and we experience the intimacy of our true nature. And the other one is kind of facilitating that, but we think it's about the other one. And then five years later, when they're not doing that for us anymore, (laughs) but you tricked me, you know. You were my doorway to the beloved. What happened? You know, you never told me you had so much neurosis. (laughs) Maybe what we're really loving is our own nature. And, and it's not different from yours. It's, it's the nature of things. Maybe that's what we really love. So let's bring this right down into the building blocks of our practice here.
this investigation of two-ness, right from our own meditation. This is from one of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito. He's a monk in the Theravadan tradition and the abbot of a monastery in Sussex, Chithurst Monastery. And it's, t- it's actually a transcript from a talk he gave, I just saw the year at the top, uh, 19 years ago, 18 years ago, he was giving a talk in Bodhgaya at a retreat. I think it was there. So just to bring it really back down to, to earth here, this is not esoteric. This is very realizable. Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit. Pain, I would think. Be with the pain. That'll do it. Here I am being with the pain, being with the pain. It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Ah, that's got it. Oh no, cushion. One cushion. Two cushions. Three cushions. Four cushions. Angle the cushions to the left. Angle the cushions to the right. (laughs) Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor. Osteopath. For five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. It's a very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually got to this. I accept what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like the pain. Pain is good for you. Or then, pain is bad, make it go away. But I'd never really looked into, I do not like. One day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours, and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, what about... What about the middle way and all of that? (laughs) Hours go by, two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain, my mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. And it had come back to, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. I got tired out, I guess, Eventually, ignorance does get tired after a while and it has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, I actually began to open to it without the let's open to it and make it go away or let's open to it and that will make me go into some sort of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. Then I began to see this sensation throbbing away And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, no, feeling going on. Oh, resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. And this kind of moaning mind. 
As I contemplated my relationship to this sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation, but I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, had imposed upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way, telling it to be like that. And I felt like this whole system was some, like some kind of mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of a dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me and saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and harshness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing, me and the pain, me and the pain, and then the whole thing exploded very gently and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say thank you. Finally, I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned and the business is finished. So this turning toward ourself as the object of coming close, of understanding what it is to be intimate. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. And this is taken from the diary of Raymond Carver, who was a poet. And it's the last entry from his book that he wrote while he was dying of cancer. And this is what he wrote. And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? to call myself beloved, 
to feel myself beloved on this earth? And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on this earth. So to enter and to discover something new, we practice. We practice to see things as they are because when we do, we start, it starts to loosen up our fixed ideas. Have you had any ideas a little bit unhinged this weekend? Any ideas about how you are, how things are? This is from Stephen Batchelor, who's one of the senior teachers connected here at Gaia House. About practice. Repeatedly embracing the dynamic, precarious, and selfless flow of experience gradually erodes this ingrained conviction of our separate existence. To enhance this further still, it helps to let go of not just of attachment to a fixed self, but of all views that confine and fix experience. (coughs) Excuse me. This can be achieved by recognizing that however we describe it, so however we describe this, what we're seeing moving and changing, and however we describe it, even as dynamic, precarious, and selfless, he says, what is happening is utterly mysterious. No matter what label we put on it, that tries to make it known and knowable to us, Actually, do you really understand what's going on here? Having been born as one of these, with legs and arms, and then there's all these other ones with legs and arms, and you kind of like them, and you want to get close, and then you want to go away, and you don't like what they said. And and then there's buildings and nature and sky and earth, and and you have to kind of eat to keep it going and go to sleep at night. We make it all very knowable through our mind. She's just saying that part about going to sleep. Somebody was mentioning in a meeting today, she said, it's only when I get to sleep, go to sleep, that I get rest from this incessant monologue of, you know, giving myself a hard time. And I said to her, yet yeah, where I, a sister center to here where I've practiced, they say, sleep is the poor man's nibbana. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, whew. right, poor man's nibbana. There's, there is some respite from that constant sense of self being at the center of things, whether it's harsh or, you know, oh, get some break from that, 
Can you imagine? And that's why it's so hard, I think, you know, when we don't sleep well. We don't get much of a break from that. It's hard when that's what we're seeing. And then he goes on to say, as mindful awareness becomes stiller and clearer, experience not only becomes more vivid, have you noticed that, that things are more vivid? They start to stand out like um, the grass outside or, you know, yeah, even the pain gets more vivid. Or, wow, this mind state is vivid. Or the somebody else in the queue is vivid. Or the food, you know, the salad. It's so green. It's really vivid. It not only becomes more vivid, but simultaneously more baffling. Anyone been baffled? The more deeply we know something in this way, this kind of knowing, this kind of immediate knowing, the more deeply we know something in this way, the more deeply we don't know it. The more deeply we know it, the more deeply we don't know it. It's when we think we know each other, right? I know you. You're just like that. You're one of these kind of people that says that, does that. And we kind of expect that to show up in the other, and then it does. See? I knew I knew you. But what's it like when we meet each other or ourselves without knowing? Which is why when we do these inquiry exercises with people we don't know, it's also interesting with people we do know, but when it's with people we don't know, we're not coming with those such preconceived ideas, and new things can start to show up. We don't even have to show up in the same way for the other. In case, you know, if I start to change and develop and new things start to come up, it might freak the other one out. Because they know me as really nice and sensible and calm and then suddenly I'm excited. So we have this kind of peculiar agreement sometimes with our friends even. That, you know, I promise not to change if you don't. You know. But to really let that start to open up. Then new things can happen. And this is taken from the book quite a long time ago, and it must be about 15 years ago now, for those of you old enough to remember, starting to enjoy saying that. Because <laughs> I remember. <laughs> it's one of the nice parts of being middle-aged. Um... It's from Brian Keenan, who was a hostage in the Lebanon, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, For many years. And then he wrote this book afterwards that was called An Evil Cradling. And this is taken from his book. Another day. The shuffling acolyte and I take part in our daily ritual that long, short walk to the toilet. The same walk back and I'm home again. I don't look anymore at the food, knowing its monotony will not change, not even its place on my filthy floor. The door closes, the padlock rattling, and it's over again for another day. With calm, disinterested deliberation, I pull my head from the filthy towel that blinds me, and slowly turn to go like a dog well-trained to its corner, to sit again and wait. 
and wait, forever waiting. I look at this food I know to be the same as it always has been. But wait, my eyes are almost burned by what I see. There's a bowl in front of me that wasn't there before, a brown button bowl, and in it some apricots, some small oranges, some nuts, cherries and a banana. The fruits, the colours mesmerise me in a quiet rapture that spins through my head. I am entranced by colour. I lift an orange into the flat, filthy palm of my hand and feel and smell and lick it. The colour orange, the colour, the colour, my God, the colour orange. Before me is a feast of colour. I feel myself begin to dance, slowly. I am intoxicated by colour. I feel my, I am intoxicated by colour. I feel the colour in a quiet, sonambulant rage. Such wonder, such absolute wonder, in such an insignificant fruit. I cannot, I will not eat this fruit. I sit in quiet joy, so complete, beyond the meaning of joy. My soul finds its own completeness in that bowl of colour. The forms of each fruit, the shape, the curl and the bend, all so rich, so perfect, I want to bow before it, loving that blazing, roaring orange colour. Everything meeting in a moment of colour and of form. My rapture no longer abstract, it is there in that tiny bowl, the world recreated in that broken bowl. I feel the smell of each fruit leaping into me and lifting me and carrying me. I am drunk with something that I understand but cannot explain. I am filled with a sense of love. I am filled and satiated by it. What I have waited and longed for has without my knowing come to me and taken all of me. And so for him, you know, conditions were intensified, obviously. Meditation retreat, the conditions are intensified. Not quite like that, right? But it's also intensified. But it doesn't mean our experience has to be intense. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is not. And sometimes that uh, call to deepen which is, a, we could say, the call to real intimacy, real, unmediated knowing, can be very, very quiet. There was a child all, made all of salt who very much wanted to know where she had come from. So she set out on a long journey and travelled to many lands in pursuit of this understanding. Finally, she came to the shore of the great ocean. How marvellous, she cried, and stuck one foot in the water. The ocean beckoned her in further, saying, If you wish to know who you are, 
Do not be afraid. The salt child walked further and further into the water, dissolving with each step, and at the end exclaimed, Ah, now I know who I am. And we can have two reactions to that story. We can have many, any reaction you like to that story, but often two. One is, oh, that, that kind of uh, heart's yearning for dissolving. Right? Oh, something in us called to that, recognizing that, yes, oh. Right? The dis- dissolution of that whole sense of separation. And the other can be absolute terror. Like, oh my God, is that what the spiritual journey is about? <laughs> Get me out of this sea. I'm going to dissolve. Thank you very much. Because to that ordinary sense of ourself, it looks like death. Or as my mind used to conceive it, you know, with all these teachings of letting go or understanding impermanence or. You know, there's not really a separate you hearing that and my mind mediating it as, well, that means, you know, I'm going to end up like compost. <laughs> it was like this horrible fear of being, I don't know if you've been to the garden over there where the compost is going to, well, if I, you know, then what's left really, it's just going to be compost here. And that's really the view of the old. It's the view of the, limited sense of self who can of course cannot conceive of freedom of course you have to kind of in a way be kind to her like yeah and and let yourself keep hearing that intimation to depth which i believe everyone who bothers to come on a retreat is called by on some level as you know there are easier things you could have done this weekend Right? But that call to the depth of what we are doesn't necessarily shout the loudest, isn't necessarily the thing that calls the strongest. We learn how to take care with those things that <coughs> shout the loudest. The fear, the aversion, the, all of those things that have kind of sort of stronger colors in a way. And yet, that's not all that's going on, is it? Maybe just as we sit here right now, letting go of, or seeing at least in the mind, the notion of, okay, right, so after the talk's over, I'll go and practice that. Or I won't go and practice that. Sounds terrible. Right? But it's, but here, here. Not to only conceive ourselves in time. Okay. 20 past 8, then I can practice intimacy. When I can go walk. 
But right now, if you're not leaning forward in time, and right now if you're not leaning back, resisting your humanity, our humanity, then where does it leave you? Just breathing, just have a breath with that, in case it sounds like a strange question, just have a breath. Not going forward, not going backward. Here we are. And one way that the Buddha invites us to practice in this way is where he has a teaching where he says, and you can try it out right now. So right now, in the seeing, so he's talking about the eyes, this doorway, this eye doorway. In the seeing, just the seeing. And don't try and wrap your head around this because it, it won't be satisfied. right? In the seeing, so just right now, those of you who've got your eyes open, which is most of you, in the seeing, so not having to go anywhere, but just letting what is the colors and the forms and all of the visual field, let it come to you. Rather than looking, you know, kind of looking out at, just seeing, in the seeing, just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. Can you hear right now? Did you hear that? And where does it leave you right now? With such a bare invitation. And where it might leave you is in the seeing, just the seeing. And what you might notice is that in the seeing, just the seeing, there is no two in that moment. There is no two-ness. Two-ness arises as the conceptual mind comes in and says, oh yeah, right, it's a green plant and a wooden Buddha and a and a Catherine. That's fine. That's part of the story that we're doing. No problem with the conception. Right? And yet maybe we notice or start to get the intimation of a kind of knowing that is not just bound by conceiving. The immaculate conception. The conceiving that is without separation. And this kind of knowing is not really an experience that I can have. That's, what, that's why we kind of also can be a little disconcerted by, well, that's a really kind of bare teaching. I don't get it. 
There's nothing very juicy in it. There's nothing in it for me. I can't solve my problems with that teaching. And actually, it's not the intention to solve in the way that we might like resolution. But the more we can rest back into this knowing, resolution can start to unfold. It's not an experience that I, as this separate little me, can have, but yet it can be known. It can be known. And the nearest thing to it, in a way, that we can recognize is silence and stillness. This is from Thomas Merton. That there is a reality that is present to us and in us. Call it being. Right? Spiritual practitioners for eons have argued about calling it a something or calling it a nothing. But he's just saying, call it being for the sake of argument. There is a reality that is present to us and in us. Call it being. Silence. And the simple fact that by being attentive, by learning to listen, or recovering the natural capacity to listen, we can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained. The happiness of being at one with everything in the hidden ground of care for which there can be no explanation hidden ground of care for which there can be no explanation. May we all grow in grace and peace and not neglect the silence that is printed in the centre of our being. It will not fail us. It will not fail us. I'll finish with Kalu Rinpoche again. (coughs) And just let yourself hear it. (coughs) Without necessarily having to refer to what you already know. Let it impact you, if you like. doesn't have to make sense to your conceiving mind. We live in illusion and in the appearance of things. 
There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are no thing. And being no thing, you are everything. That is all. So let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.